they're, they're on their trip, so we wish them well. I know they're having a great time, and I don't know, in Ireland right now, it's 5.30 at night, so maybe they're having dinner. Who knows? But I know they're praying for us. I got an email this morning uh, that they are praying for the service today. But let's have church today. I want to read one passage of Scripture, and we're just going to jump right in uh, to what God wants to do today. And I want to read one passage of Scripture again. Thank you for all of our guests that are here. We welcome you. I'm particularly happy to have my adopted in-laws here, Brother and Sister McDonald. Glad they're here. Um, Just always glad to have them. All of our guests, you are welcome today. I have a burden this morning, have something that God has given me to share today. I'm going to do my best to deliver it uh, the way God has placed it. On my heart. John chapter 4, verse 35. John chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus speaking, and I see now uh, that I must have lifted this probably from the New King James, so it may read just slightly different from the screen, but the essence is the same. Jesus speaking, he says, Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. For they are already white for harvest. And so today from that passage from the words of Jesus Christ, I just want to speak for a few moments on the subject, the world is waiting, why are we? The world is waiting, why are we? Everybody say, God bless the word. In May of 1999, Malcolm Daly and Jim Donini stood 3,000 feet uh, up an unclimbed face on Thunder Mountain in Alaska, just a few hundred feet below the summit. Daly offered to let his friend go first on the rope to experience the joy of reaching the summit first, but Donini said, no, you keep it. You are the one that deserves this gift. Daly climbed toward the summit, swinging His ice axe like a giant claw, kicking knife-like spikes attached to his boots into the ice, moving methodically up the near vertical wall. He dragged the safety rope along behind him while Donini remained anchored to the wall, feeding the rope through a a friction device that would snap tight if the rope suddenly jerked. The plan? Daly would climb to the summit, anchor himself to the top of the mountain, and then hold the safety rope while Donini climbed up to meet him. With only about 15 feet of steep climbing to go, Daly reached a section of rock where he could place no protection. No problem, he thought. The final few feet of climbing looked easy. Daly placed his left hand on a big jut of rock, groping about with his right hand, looking for another hold, thinking to himself, this next move is it. There will be no more moves on this route. We are essentially up. But something gave way. Daly fell 10 feet, 20 feet, 40 feet, 100 feet, and still falling. He smashed into his partner, puncturing Donini's right thigh with the pointed teeth of his spikes. Something sharp sliced the rope, 10 of 12 core strands of rope severed through. The other two remaining strands of cord, less than 2 millimeters thick, stretched but did not break. Mercifully, Daly stopped, crumpled into a hump. He lay there for some time, and when he regained consciousness with blood dripping from his scalp, he looked at his lower legs and feet, and they were shattered with compound fractures, feet flopping 
absolutely useless. He felt literally the ends of busted bone rubbing together. Donini descended down to his friend Daly, and they tried to engineer a self-rescue, but soon realized that any movement would only worsen the compound fractures, and in fact, Daly stood the chance of bleeding to death. Daly told his friend, he said, you've got to go get a rescue. So after anchoring Daly to the wall, Donini took off on a 3,000-foot solo descent, something that very few people are able to do. Within moments after Donini reached base camp at the bottom of the mountain, he heard something quite unexpected. His friend, Paul Roderick, just happened to be flying by that particular valley at that exact moment. Donini waved him down, and Roderick flew directly to the ranger station. A plan to rescue Daly began immediately many hours sooner than if Donini had needed to hike to the station. Those hours proved pivotal. By the time the rescue was organized, impending storms threatened to curtail the entire attempt. Racing the weather, a helicopter uh, was dispatched and flew up onto Daly's perch and rescued the, uh, a rescue pilot hung down from a cable below the chopper, swung into the mountainside and plucked Daly to safety. Four hours later, a huge storm enveloped the mountain and raged on for 12 days. Now imagine with me this morning what it must have been like to be in Daly's shoes as he waited on that mountainside for rescue. Grueling cold, a body that was battered and bruised, broken, refusing to respond to the commands that his brain gave it, tired, hungry, wondering probably if it was all over and that he had come to the end of his life. The only choice he had was to wait, to wait for his friend, to wait for a rescue squad. His circumstances and his surroundings dictated to him that he was boxed in, that all he could do was hope that his friend could bring help to him. The staggering reality today as we sit on our church pew this morning on a Sunday morning is that literally billions of people worldwide are in the same predicament spiritually that Daly was in on the mountain. They're waiting on someone to rescue them from the life-threatening stronghold that sin has them bound in. Rescue from bondage, rescue from hurt and pain, from circumstances that are spiraling out of their control. And just as Daly had to rely on others and the efforts of others, the world is waiting on us. They're waiting on you. They're waiting on me to reach them with a word of hope, a word of healing. They're waiting on us to reach them with the gospel. Let me establish this fact from the beginning. Jesus Christ is still the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is still the answer for the world today. The gospel has the power to change lives. And there is no broken life. There is no broken life that it cannot speak into. There are no chains of addiction that it cannot break. There is no past of hurt or regret or of turmoil that it cannot overcome. No soul that it cannot save and no situation that it cannot overcome. I today am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus Christ still changes lives today. The thing is, though, he chooses to do it through his church. He chooses to do it through people like you. He chooses to do it through people like me. He said, Jesus Christ said, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail. It's the church that he chooses to work through. It's the church that he chooses to reach people with. In our text this morning, Jesus said, Say not there are four months until harvest, but look at the fields. They're already ready. They're already prompt, or, or they're already set for a harvest. In other words, Jesus was saying, to put it in our terms, what are you waiting for? The harvest is ready. What are you waiting for? You're not waiting on the harvest because it is ready. Today, over 2,000 years since Jesus uttered those words, the resounding cry from our leader is the same. The word of God to us is that we are not waiting on the harvest. The harvest is waiting on us. Church, we have a job to do. Church, this is our hour. Church, now is the time to touch the literal millions of people who are waiting for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was so impressed just a few months ago when Ashley Tipler uh, brought a friend with her from school to youth camp. And Cheyenne got the Holy Ghost at youth camp this past summer. It was just a couple of weeks later that Ashley brought her friend from school named Christian to our youth group and to our church. And now Christian is filled up with the Holy Ghost. And we baptized him uh, uh, several months ago in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm so proud of, of those in our church that are launching ministries and, and different efforts and, and uh, reaches to touch people. And, and, and that's what we have to do. That is reaping the harvest. That's being actively involved in the harvest. But today, I can't help but cry out in my spirit. And I can't help but think to myself, and ask myself in my mind, how many more Cheyennes are out there? How many more Christians are out there? How many more people do I walk by every day of my life that need a shot at the gospel? They need what I have. They need the truth of the life-changing power of the gospel. Church, we're not waiting on them. They are waiting on us. Jesus, our leader, gives us many examples of what it is like to be on a mission of ministry, of what it's like to be on a mission of compassion. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, the Bible says, When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. I'm moved by that passage that says Jesus was moved. Can you imagine Jesus walking out, and surveying a vast crowd of people and seeing their needs. No doubt there were people there that were broken in body. There were people there that were sick. There were people that were hurting in their spirit. There were lives that had been torn apart. There were people with great and diverse needs. And the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion. I want that kind of compassion. When I see a world in need, when I see someone who is hurting, when my neighbor is in trouble, when my friend has a need, I want to be moved by compassion for them. Jesus Christ was so consumed with compassion for people that often he would go out of his way to minister to their needs. Often we see him extending his reach even when it took him out of his comfort zone, yet somehow Jesus was never more comfortable than when he was ministering to someone. And it's striking to me this morning that that someone was usually the down and outer. Usually it was the hurting, the sick, the oppressed, 
those ravaged by the religious system of the day that had left people empty and and vapid in their spirit. Jesus was always drawn to people in need. He was always reaching, always loving, even when it seemed they were unlovable. It's It's interesting to note that many of the Bible commentators and many of the Bible scholars say about the passage of Scripture that we read today, that when Jesus told his disciples to survey the harvest, many commentators say that he was pointing to a crowd of Samaritans that had gathered. Immediately preceding this verse that I read today, the Bible gives us the account of when Jesus ministered to the woman at the well. That woman was a Samaritan. And she went back and she told her community, she told her friends and her family what Jesus had done in her life. And a crowd had gathered. And many people feel like, many scholars feel like that Jesus took the moment to instruct his disciples and say, now is the time for the harvest. Look upon the harvest. There it is. And he was pointing to the Samaritans. Yet the Samaritans were the most despised in the cultural society of that day. They were the lowest on the societal rung of the ladder, if you will. Yet those were the ones that Jesus wanted his disciples to minister to. Those were the hurting. Those were the poor. Those were the ones that the rest of society had cast out. Yet those were the ones Jesus had called his disciples to minister to. You and I walk by them every day. We see them at school and at work and in our neighborhoods. They're hurting people. People that need what we have. People whose lives could forever be changed by the gospel message if they were given a chance to hear it. The thing is today that you and I, every one of us has a part to play in this story. We all have a part to play in the harvest. Every one of us has something that we can do. Someone that we can touch. Some role that we can play. And if we don't step up, the staggering reality is is that if we don't step up and fulfill our role, it may not get done. And that brings us to where we are today. Just like the rescue mountain, just like the rescue mission on Thunder Mountain was carried out by people, the message of the good news of God, of the gospel, that it can rescue the lives of men and women must be carried out by people, namely you and me. Jesus is calling. Even more than that, he is relying on us to reap a harvest that is waiting. Nothing else needs to happen. No other word needs to be spoken. No other directive needs to be given. In fact, we've already been given the directive when Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, we have already been empowered. In other words, we have already been given the directive. All we have to do now is act on it. It's interesting to me today that we live in a culture and a world that is uh, people that are looking for their purpose. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not preaching against looking for your purpose. We had an excellent lesson on that topic this morning in the teen class by Brother Steve Elsenrath. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point I'm making, we live in a culture where people are constantly trying to find their purpose. They're looking for a dream. They're looking for a goal. They want a battle to fight, a a story to live. And and so we've got self-help books and life coaches and mentoring groups and networks all designed to help people find their purpose in life. Yet for the Christian, our purpose was already given to us when we were born again and when we were saved. 
our purpose was already given, to go ye into all the world and make disciples. To go ye into all the world and share the gospel of the good news of kingdom life. You see, this thing did not stop with our salvation. It didn't stop when we were saved. You weren't born again to punch the clock every Sunday morning and put your hour in and go home patting yourself on the back for a job well done. Quite the contrary. You were saved. He saved you so that he could send you. He cleansed you so that he could commission you. And you and I were meant for the mission. We were meant for the mission. We were meant to do something about the harvest. So if we were meant for the harvest, and if the harvest is waiting on us, how then do we reap the harvest? Well, I'm glad this morning that you asked. I'll try to demystify it for you just a little bit. Now, traditionally in our movement, and probably to a greater extent in Christianity in general, we've made soul winning and harvest reaping more uh, complicated than it has to be. We've made it a little bit more uh, almost a hocus-pocus thing, if I could say it that way, that, that, uh, that we can't win souls until we're, we're totally prayed up and not had a bad day and everything's gone just right at home and on the job and with the kids. And when, we're, when our spiritual, we're just cranked up spiritually just the right degree and maybe, maybe it's coming out of a conference or a camp and maybe everything, you know, we feel like we're really on level with God where we need to be, which probably isn't all that often. And, and so we, we, relegate, we relegate soul winning to some sort of, you know, utopia where all the pieces fall in place. And, and then I will soul win. I wish God would deliver us from that thought process. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how we got it ingrained into our lives. But some way we've got to be delivered from that. And I hope that begins today. Consider with me today, if you will, if you were, were the man, this man daily that was stuck on the mountain. And you were, you were up there. He, his friend had to tie him down to keep him from blowing off the mountain from, from all the wind and the snow. He's cold. He's hurt. A lot of pain. He's hungry. He's uncertain about the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. When he saw that helicopter pilot come in there and that guy rappel down the rope to his rescue, do you think he was worried about whether or not that flight plan was going according to the textbook where the pilot learned to fly that helicopter. Do you think he was concerned about what kind of life that pilot was living and whether everything was right at home, whether everything was right with his kids? I venture to say that at that moment, Daly didn't care who the pilot was. He could have been a convict or a politician. And it wouldn't have mattered. But it was a rescue. It was hope. It was something that was going to take him out of his situation and bring him to rescue and bring him to safety. When we, church, when we go to people and when we see hurting people, they're not worried about you. They're not worried about whether you have your act together and whether all the ducks are in the row. They just want what you have. They just want to hear what God has done for you. They just want something that will take them out of their situation. We do have a message, church. We do have a message. It's the word of God, and it's our testimony. Now, let me talk about that just a moment. First of all, biblical literacy in our society is at an all-time low. So I would be willing to say if you've been to Sunday school at least one time and you've been to a Sunday service at least one time, you probably already know more 
than most people do about the Word of God. So I think we got you qualified there. You can be a soul winner based on that. Everybody's heard the Word of God at least once, so that you're a step ahead. But the other thing is, is your testimony. Your testimony. Sometimes we forget. The Bible says we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the Word of our testimony. And sometimes we forget about that really All there is to reaping a harvest, all there is to speaking into somebody's life is just sharing what God has done for you. That's not so hard, is it? Jamie testified this morning in Sunday school. She said that her her neighbor had mentioned something about seeing her life and her witness and just encouraged her, said, you keep doing what you're doing, keep living like you're living. And I thought that was nice, but I was challenged by the response she gave to her neighbor. I thought it was great. I'm not so sure I would have thought to say it. Maybe I'm... I guess I'm preaching myself today, but she said, well, she said, you know what, neighbor, you can, you can know Jesus like I do. What a great response. What a great way to take that conversation and just guide it right into sharing what God had done for her. That's all you got to do. It's the word of your testimony. Share with somebody a verse of scripture that means something to you. Go visit somebody who is going through a tough time. Help someone maybe that's had a health issue or a family issue. Just extend a helping hand to someone. That's really what we're talking about. It's not hocus pocus. It's not that you have to have a call to preach or a, or a, a fellowship card in your wallet. You just got to be willing to share with somebody. Somebody once said, famously, said we should not ask what is wrong with the world for that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask what has happened to the salt and the light. So if the world is waiting, and now we have a little bit of an idea of what we need to do to reap the harvest, why then are we waiting? My question to you at the beginning, why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? Well, there are probably many reasons for every person that's in this building today. I imagine there's that number of reasons No doubt we could come up with a lot of things. There's some people who say they can't. Talked a little bit about that. There's some that say they won't. And uh, they choose to live their life much less than what God has for them. Much less than the blessing of what it's like to be a soul winner. And they're content to just sit back and let others do the work. Others are content to live less than their calling. Um, Some just won't for whatever reason, but for most, if the truth were told, if, if uh, we really boil it all down and we could just kind of lump it all together, I believe today that the chief reason that most of us are not as active in soul winning or reaping the harvest and heeding the directive of our leader is really could all be boiled down to apathy, apathy, and that word apathy, you know, I'm reminded of the, of the couple that was sitting in church and the pastor was preaching on apathy and The wife looked over at the husband. She said, what is apathy? And he looked back at her and he said, I don't know and I don't care. Apathy is that state, that state of just not really caring enough, not really being disturbed enough, not really recognizing the need or the call, not willing to heed it because we're just not engaged in it enough. It disturbs me. To my core, and this is what God has been dealing with me about, that now we are living in a day much closer to the end of time than ever before. Much closer to the rapture of the church 
than ever before. Yet, on the other side of that, it seems as though the church has a less sense of urgency than ever before. I read an article this week and uh, can give you the source, but the, uh, the, the highest ranking intelligence officials in Washington now believe that Israel will strike Iran sometime between September the 15th and October the 15th. And our, our leaders, our politicians are pleading with them to wait until after the presidential elections. And most feel that that, heed will go, that call will go unheeded and that they will strike sometime within that 30-day window. And as those headlines are literally, it's, it's prophecies from the Word of God literally leaping onto the front page of the newspaper. And then on the other side of that coin, I see a world that is hurting like it's never been hurting before. I see a world that is broken by sin. I see a world that is weary. I see a world that has had havoc wrecked upon, its, its, upon it by sin. And yet, somehow, we are undisturbed. And yet, somehow, we go on about our life. Tozer said, a man by his sin may waste himself, which is to waste that which on earth is most like God. He said, this is man's greatest tragedy and God's heaviest grief. We live in a world that is wasting themselves on sin. They're wasting themselves on that which is most precious to God. That is heaven's greatest grief. And if it's heaven's greatest grief, then it should be our greatest grief as well. I read in my studies for youth ministry, I'm reading about some of the disturbing trends that our young people are, are involved in. And, and some of them are so, so pathetic and so awful that, that I really wouldn't even be comfortable talking to you about them here in this setting. But, but recently I read about some, some horrible practices that actually end up in the killing in self-killing. They wind up committing suicide accidentally, if that makes sense. They wind up killing themselves over trying to get a high and trying to get a pleasure buzz from different things. And, of course, you've heard of cutting and some of the, the awful things that go with cutting. And it, it, it just broken lives everywhere you look, broken homes, a world that is in trouble. Church, it is time for us to sense the urgency of heaven. It's time for us to sense the urgency of the hour and be busy about the Father's business of reaping the harvest that he has given us. The world depends on it. Romans 13 and 11 says that now, knowing the time, it is high time to wake out of sleep. In other words, it's time to shed the apathy. It's time to get engaged. It's time to get involved. It's time to reap the harvest. We can't sit in the pew and entertain ourselves with the programs of every Sunday morning anymore. And we can't pat ourselves on the back on a job well done as long as there are empty pews in our church. There's a world that is lost and time is running out. We've got to reach them. Each of us, each of us has something we can do. Each of us has a part to play. I'm bringing this in for a landing in just a few more moments, but I want to challenge you and try to bring this down to where you live and, and give you an action, a couple of action items here. But each of us has a part to play. There is all, all of us have something that we can do, a role that we can play in the harvest. Brother McCool sang here a few Sundays ago, and it, it, it just wrecked me. He sang, the name of his song was The Sunday School Girl, and he told a story about a little girl that uh, woke herself up for Sunday school, and uh, her, her parents were asleep with a hangover, and uh, they, they were godless, not interested in, in anything. But somehow this little girl would get herself up, and she'd go to the end of her driveway, and there would be a bus there, a bus ministry there, and pick her up and take her to Sunday school. That song wrecked me because that is Farah, my wife's testimony. 
That's where she came from. That's the life she lived. She didn't have spiritual input from home. Nobody putting her in the car and bringing her to church. Nobody uh, getting her ready for church. In fact, many times she'll tell you she and her sisters would get themselves up and get themselves ready for church on Sunday mornings and go to the church because her parents were either asleep from the party before or they were not even at home, having not even come home, leaving children there by themselves. But some way, somehow, somebody felt the need to get a bus route and to get up early on a Sunday morning and get behind the wheel of a bus. And they picked up those little girls from school, from home and took them to Sunday school. I don't know who that bus driver is. My wife doesn't know their name. And their name may indeed be lost to history, but their name will never be lost to eternity. That precious lifesaver, that rescue worker that got up every Sunday morning. You understand, they got up when they didn't feel good, Brother Merrill. They got up when it was cold, when it was raining. When it would have been easier just to get in the, in the sedan and go to church with their family. But instead they said, you know what, I think I'll go on my bus route again this morning. I don't know if these kids are getting anything out of this. I don't know who will be on the bus. But I'm, I'm just captivated by the call. I'm captivated by the call. I've got to do something. And so this bus driver took Farah and her sisters to, to Sunday school. I wonder if they knew when they were picking her up that they were picking up a future missionary. I wonder if they knew they were picking up a future youth pastor's wife, which you understand is the same as being the youth pastor. I wonder if they understood that they were picking up a future Bible quizzer and a Bible quiz coach. What if the bus driver had not heeded the call? What if the bus driver had not gone out into the harbor? Would Farah be here today? Would she have been rescued? Would the subsequent lives that she has touched been touched if she had not been on that bus? It was important. That, that bus driver do what they did. Was it worth it? To Farah, it was worth it. To me, it was worth it. To God, it was worth it. And to eternity, it was worth it. And so I'm here to tell somebody, maybe you can drive the Sunday school bus. Maybe you can teach a Sunday school class. Maybe you can serve in a soup kitchen. Maybe you can give your time. Maybe you were called to be a missionary. Maybe you're called to be an intercessor. The list goes on and on, and for every person in here, it's different, probably. But this is the point. There is something that all of us can do. There is something that God has placed on your heart that only you and you alone can do. There is something God has placed on me that only I can do. We do have a mission. We do have a message. We just have to get motivated to share it. If you will stand with me in conclusion and as our ministers or our music team come, I want to conclude with this rather gripping story. Father Damien first came to Hawaii in 1864. He had been born in Europe, the sturdily built son of a well-to-do Belgian farmer. And when his brother fell ill and could not travel to his post at Hawaii's Sacred Heart Mission, Damien asked to take his place. For a decade, Damien served at the mission, and during that time, he watched as many of his parishioners were forced away to the island of Molokai. Now, Molokai, that island's name was pronounced bitterly. It was, pierced, it was pronounced with loathing and fear. Between 1866 and 1873, nearly 800 lepers were quarantined there 
on an isolated peninsula. It was a leper colony. Abandoned without law or hope, these lepers gave themselves alternately to despair and what pleasures they could grasp. Robbery, drunkenness, anarchy marked their lives. When finally, after torturous descent, the lepers finally succumbed to their disease, their already decayed bodies often became food for pigs and wild dogs. The memory of his parishioners who had been sent to Molokai remained wedged in Damien's mind, and slowly it built into a fierce emotion. He yearned to go to the lepers and to convey love to them where they lived. In April of 1873, Father Damien wrote to his superiors asking for permission, and a month later he stood on the beaches of the dreaded island. Damien steeled himself for the worst. He prepared himself for the worst, but the sights and the smells of Molokai left him gasping. One of his first encounters was a young girl, her body already half eaten by worms. One by one, Damien set out to meet all of the lepers. Carefully, avoiding physical contact, he confronted their rotten bodies, their putrid breath, and their ever-present raspid coughing. Damien's first desire was to remind the lepers of their inherent dignity as children of God. To demonstrate the value of their lives, he honored them in their deaths, constructing coffins, digging graves, protecting the cemetery from the savage animals, and ensuring a ceremony for every passing. As the days went by, however, Damien began to feel that he could not fully convey all that he wished to share without drawing even nearer. He began timidly to reach out and touch the lepers. He ate with them. He hugged them. Over time, he even began to clean and wrap their oozing sores. Everything Damien did, he did with the lepers. Together, they built cottages, coffins, chapels, and roads. He taught them how to farm, raise animals, and even sing despite their mangled vocal cords. One report described him teaching two lepers to play the organ with the ten fingers they had between them. Damien sought to draw uh, near to the lepers as well, even speaking of we lepers. Writing to his brother in Europe, he explained, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. That is why in preaching I say we lepers. It was 11 years after Damien's arrival in Molokai that he spilled boiling water on his leg and watched in horror as his feet blistered, yet he felt no pain. His efforts to draw near to the lepers were complete. Now he would meet them in their disease as well. The final five years of his life, Damien served the lepers of Molokai as a leper priest. The days passed with both joy and suffering. Outpourings of international support arrived at the island and also from several helpers. Alongside these blessings, however, came physical pain, times of loneliness, and even depression. Finally, in April of 1889, Damien breathed his last. He was laid to rest among the thousands of lepers he had helped bury in what he called the Garden of the Dead. Damien touched the lepers with a hand that soothed and embraced them, even when everyone else had done all they could to keep the lepers away. Church, today, we've got to get our hands in the harvest. Today, we've got to get our hands in somebody's life. Too, easy, too, too many times it's too easy to turn and walk away, to ignore the suffering, to ignore the hurt, to ignore what's going on in somebody else's life. It's easy to get just caught up in our life cycle and caught up in our routine and caught up in our everyday cares. It's time to step out of ourselves and get in to the harvest.